The news! It's mad, it's out of control, and there's so much of it. That's why we've launched Paper Cuts, the fast and funny podcast that makes sense of the great British press, now out five days a week. I'm Miranda Sawyer, and I'm joined by brilliant comedians, commentators, journalists and general smart people to look at the weirdness, the obsessions and the occasional triumphs of the papers. We're out mid-morning every weekday with the funniest headlines, the wildest stories and tip-top commentary on the absolute state of the fourth estate. Subscribe now on your favourite podcast app. That's Paper Cuts. We read the papers so you don't have to. Hello and welcome to The Bunker with me, Gavin Essler. I suspect that all of us are familiar with the following headline, Trust in Politicians at an All-Time Low. Last year, the Office for National Statistics backed up that rather dreary headline by reporting that only a third of the UK population trusted our national government, significantly lower than the OECD average of over 40%. But curiously, we British do tend to trust each other quite a lot. We trust the civil service and especially the NHS and the courts. I'm mentioning these statistics about politicians because a new book from one of our best political writers and commentators, Steve Richards, shows a remarkable degree not just of insight, but of empathy and understanding about the difficulties politicians get into when trying to solve problems and, according to their views, to make Britain better. The book is called Turning Points and, as the title suggests, reassesses the history of post-war Britain through the crises and changes that required bold political leadership. I'm delighted to welcome Steve to the bunker. Hello, Steve. Hi, Gavin. Now, your turning points include the Labour landslide of 1945, Suez, Mrs Thatcher, Brexit, also social change, the 1967 Abortion Act and the, the quadrupling of the price of oil. So how did you decide which turning points would be the most useful? Well, first of all, I decided to keep the span relatively constrained. So begin in 1945, post-Second World War, and then to focus on seismic events in the UK where there was a clear arc, a kind of beginning and an end. So you could make judgments about the significance of the turning points, the degree to which the UK learnt lessons from what had happened. Um, and, and that kind of framed it, really. So there are three general elections, 45 and 79 being the most dramatic in terms of change. 97, after 18 years of one-party rule, is in there because there was a change of governing party. But then there are quite a few events which involve foreign affairs, Brexit, Suez, um, and external forces like COVID, the global financial crash, um, and as you mentioned, also social reforms of the late 60s, because in a way that I find very interesting, they are one of the turning points that have endured. Um, many of them haven't, but they have. Why? I found that very interesting. Let me pick up on that point, because I was very interested in that too, because I, I suddenly realised when I was reading the chapter my goodness, this seems like ancient history, doesn't it? When homosexuality, abortion rights, and so on, which we just frankly take for granted. Yeah, and it's very interesting because that 60s government of Wilson's, even though it had a very big majority, struggled with all kinds of other reforms. Industrial relations, famously Barbara Castle's In Place of Strife, died within kind of days of the publication of the White Paper. 
It struggled with economic reforms, social reforms, where there was noisy protestation, got through. And it shows in Britain several things. First of all, Britain is quite socially liberal. Opinion polls at the time suggested the reforms would be popular, one of the reasons why the socially conservative Harold Wilson kind of let them through. Second, Labour are bolder when they are doing things with conservative support. And there was a significant section of the Conservative Parliamentary Party that also backed the social reforms. And it was the same really mirror image when Cameron did something similar with gay marriage later on. And they are all in place. Margaret Thatcher, with her huge majorities in the 80s, never tried to overturn them. And they are, you know, a a monument to political will and social moods of the really late 50s, 60s. And there they still are. Maybe we could go back and do a little bit chronologically and and start with uh, 1945. Because one of the things that's just fascinating about Clement Attlee, you know, Churchill said, uh, I think it was an empty taxi, drove up to Downing Street and Clement Attlee got out. He did such a remarkable job for somebody who was presented by Churchill and others as being rather dull. Yeah, he is an enigma in some ways, I think, the most enigmatic post-war prime minister for this reason. As you say, he did a lot very quickly. Um, It wasn't just him by any means. Uh, It was a formidable cabinet that he formed in 45, many of them with experience in the wartime coalition, and they were partly moving with underlying tides, uh, which um, were propelling all politicians towards a much more greater acceptance of an active state. Um, But when you think about how fast they went compared with the caution, say, of New Labour in 1997, the NHS in place by 1948, all kinds of uh, industries nationalised, a welfare state established, India uh, self-governing, and so on. And here was this figure of kind of retiring modesty, who when he wrote his memoir in the mid-50s, some of this stuff only merited a paragraph. And it is not wholly clear whether he himself recognised the degree to which he was the instrument of great sweeping change. He certainly didn't reflect on it very much. But he is one of the great change makers of uh, post-war Britain. Uh, but I would say this, the Thatcher counter-revolution in 79 lasted for much longer. I mean, the Tories were in power for 18 years. Attlee was gone within six years. And I think therefore had less room and space to embed the changes, the reasons for the changes. Um, And then, of course, Labour were out for 13 years. So um, I think it shows the importance of winning elections, um, which Labour have always been poor at. The foreign policy angles of uh, Suez and also the Iraq war in the 21st century, Blair's war, um, struck me as very interesting partly because they and Harold Wilson refusing to get embroiled in Vietnam, the three of them together suggest that one of the enduring issues of British foreign policy is what do we do about the Americans? You know, you don't inform them about Suez, that goes wrong. You don't get involved in Vietnam, that seemed to go right for for Wilson. Uh, And then you, you tag along with them for 
understandable reasons, I think, in, in uh, Blair, you, you, you know, you make that case. Um, but it's a very difficult relationship. And I thought that was very revealing in the book. It is. And this is uh, along with Britain's relationship with Europe, which you've written brilliantly about, um, the great unresolved questions. The legendary uh, historian A.J.P. Taylor, now dead, um, once wrote of Germany, uh, Germany reached a turning point and failed to turn. And it seems to me with Britain, it reaches certainly in uh, foreign policy, uh, turning points and fails to turn. So after Suez, uh, where in the in effect America vetoed what Eden wanted to do to go to to go to war in effect to regain the Suez Canal, there was a huge debate in Britain about its new place in the world. You know whether it should be try and form a closer relationship to America, albeit a subservient one. Whether it should get closer to Europe which is what the uh, choice was of uh, Eden's successor, Harold Macmillan. Um, and on the debate went then, and we're still having the same debate now post-Brexit. And I think it is interesting with America, you know, that uh, Wilson, you see, uh, Tony Blair has qualities, but a sense of history is not one of them. And I wonder whether he looked in any detail of what Wilson did vis-a-vis Vietnam, because um, he did step back um, and uh, the Americans were furious, but it gave him actually a, a greater sense of authority, not a declining authority for doing so, and retrospectively as well. Whereas Tony Blair just got the Bush administration, you know, because of what has followed some of the Bush administration with Trump, now looks kind of respectable. Uh, and solid. It was not. It was a wild and divided administration, and as you know very well, and Blair got caught up in it. So we are still having this debate. We have reached turning points at Suez, joining the common market in 73, Iraq leaving the European Union, and we're still debating it. We, we have failed to turn and why is that? <laughs> that's, um, well, that is a good question. Perhaps that's a that's another book as well. I, I, but I was thinking when I read through those chapters, I was thinking in the context of the Afghanistan decision, where essentially the British were informed the Americans are pulling out, we couldn't stay, so uh, you know we tried to get our act together and actually did under the circumstances not too badly for 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 the British troops at least. But that does suggest that it is. Britain is really mini-me in this relationship. I mean, we've yeah. always known it, but it does seem to be very, very small role now. Yes. And I think Tony Blair took a decision uh, post-September the 11th. I mean, he wasn't uh, a specialist on the Middle East or Afghanistan, actually. Um, he was going to follow the United States. He was going to try and modify the United States in some ways, get try and persuaded to go to the UN. And that, but he had his big decision was that as a new Labour Prime Minister, after the 80s when Labour was seen as anti-American, soft on defence, he was going to be with them. That was his big call. And uh, while I can see why he made it, it was the wrong call. And actually, Afghanistan is very interesting because at the time, there was complete or almost complete consensus uh, in favour of going into Afghanistan. Um, but what happened there was depressing in that Bush, with his kind of impatient 
administration very quickly lost interest to move on to Iraq. And they moved a lot of troops from Kabul and other parts of Afghanistan. And as a result, uh, Afghanistan very quickly became a hopeless cause, actually. The Taliban were able to regroup. And I used to ask Tony Blair, I saw him quite a lot during that period, what is the logic that takes you from Afghanistan to Iraq? And he could never really answer it. And the answer is, it's because America was determined to do it, I think. Mrs. Thatcher, of course, is one of the biggest figures in the book and one of the biggest figures in our lifetime. I, I was struck also thinking about her. There's a there's a phrase of um, Samuel Beckett about James Joyce. He said, uh, the more he knew, the more he could. And in a way, Mrs. Thatcher started quite quietly, actually, and ended up as this m- huge figure in our political life. Um, her ambition really developed and her confidence developed. And that's one of the things that you outlined rather beautifully, I thought. You know, it's very hard to measure when you're looking back at relatively recent history, the degree to which what Jim Callaghan described in 1979 as a sea change, just underlying forces propelling her to power, the degree to which they shaped the 1980s, you know, the the reaction against the chaos of the 70s, etc. And the degree it was her personality. And I concluded that her personality and her willfulness was a big part of the change. In other words, in 1979, it was not inevitable that the turning point was going to be Thatcherism. It could have been um, a Britain closer to the a German model, for example, with a, a big debate about what the heck had gone wrong in the 60s and 70s and what form a modern state should take. But we didn't have that debate. The Labour went into civil war and so on. And so Thatcher, with her kind of impulsive radicalism, had the stage to herself. And boy, did she use the space. I mean, her genius was to see the political space opening up over time, not at first when her own party was pretty wary of her, but soon by the early 80s. And she turned Britain into something it had not been um, and and swiped away quite a lot of the 45 settlements. So it was her and Geoffrey Howe and others. You know, there were the right were full of ideas, in my view, deeply contentious ideas, but they prevailed and they prevailed through sheer force of political will. And I think what's really interesting now, and you're brilliant book out at the same time sort of addresses some of this that we 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 the UK are in I think similar scale of crisis to the one the UK was in it's different but scale wise as big as in the late 70s Um, has the likes of Starmer got the political will to turn it into a turning point as Thatcher did from the right I'm not sure yeah, that is the question of our times, isn't it? I think so. Has he got the will? I'll get on to him in just a moment. But what I was struck when you were talking there, you know, I was struck throughout the book, actually, your empathy for the difficulty of the decisions, whether you think they're right or wrong, whether I think they're right or wrong, or the reader does, doesn't actually matter in a way, because you show um, you show 
great understanding of these human beings that we elect to these positions of power. And did, did that surprise you how much, when you reflected on it, how much empathy you actually well, found? I, I, there I've always kind of recognised, uh, like you, I kind of am alarmed sometimes at the decisions that emerge, but I, I've always recognised the deep dilemmas and, and, and sometimes tragic contexts in which these leaders are trying to navigate uh, around. I was even, I mean, Eden uh, kind of went mad almost over Suez, but I was struck by the degree to which he had become trapped by, again, an impulsive, uncharacteristically impulsive decision uh, to use military force to get the Suez Canal back with France. And the House of Commons debates are extraordinary. I, I still think Hansard is a brilliant source for understanding politics, certainly pre-television. And um, the attacks he got in the debates in the autumn in the House of Commons were far more intense than Tony Blair with Iraq because the Tory front bench were backing Blair. Um, and there's a televised broadcast Eden gives on Suez where he is a ghostly, grainy figure. And you could almost see him fading away, metaphorically, but he was, of course. He was gone by January uh, after Suez, which began in July 56. So I'm fascinated by how figures respond sometimes to their own errors. They get trapped. And, and, and Blair, similarly, I, I completely opposed the war in Iraq and wrote for The Independent, which was a paper opposed to it at the time. Um, but I understood the dilemmas. I never thought he was a war criminal. In fact, it made no sense that Blair, this kind of cautious figure who navigated a third way, as he called it, would suddenly become this evangelical liar, lying to get to war, killing to get to war illegally. It didn't make sense to me. It, it, it's more complicated than that. Um, so yeah, I'm fascinated by how figures deal with these things, but I'm also despair, as I can tell you do from your book in a different way, um, at some of the decisions taken or not taken. So the UK is in as much of a mess now as it was in, you know, post-Suez, build up to the debates about whether to join Europe, left Europe, Vietnam, Iraq. It's, it's deeply depressing, the uh, decision well, or lack of them. That brings us up to now, doesn't it? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, uh, you end with Truss and Sunak, and I have to say, I mean, maybe, the, uh, you, you know, and, and Johnson, obviously, uh, it, it, it does seem, and this is, this is Captain Hindsight, me, um, that some of the figures that you deal with in the past, including the quiet man, Clement Attlee, were huge, yeah. um, but we are in a very difficult position because we have rotating leaders. We have people who've rushed into things without thinking. We've had series of failures and everybody, everybody knows it. So it's not surprising we don't trust the current lot at all. Really. Yeah. And not just in government, uh, the opposition has its own problems. Yeah. It's not nostalgia to recognize that um, Attlee and some of those cabinet ministers, Macmillan and some of his colleagues, Rab Butler, were objectively bigger figures than Truss and Johnson and Sunak um, are today. And it is, I mean, the starkest turning point was uh, in the Liz Truss 
fleeting era when we had the Kwarteng budget. And then two weeks later, Jeremy Hunt, the new chancellor, reversing virtually the whole package, a very stark turning point, just breathtaking, really. But as with all the turning points, it is layered and complex and nuanced in the sense that it's easy to see Sunak and Jeremy Hunt as the goodies and trust the baddies, but but they were all very close. The ideological differences are not huge. Um, so Sunak greatly admires Cameron and Osborne. It was Cameron and Osborne who promoted Liz Truss, Kwasi Kwarteng, and others. So although the turning point was stark, the connections between the divide, the Kwarteng advocacy of a budget and then Hunt reversing it, are complex. And um, I found that, I wasn't sure I was going to, but I found that with each of them, really, that there are layers to it. And I think that's one of the reasons why quite often the UK fails to turn. You know, when you explore deeper, you say, oh, yeah, that's why. I'm not justifying. I'm really, in foreign affairs especially, deeply depressed about this bewildered mix of British exceptionalism and extreme insecurity, which I think drives foreign policy. Um, But also on the domestic front, the UK cannot resolve whatever happens, its relationship with the state, what kind of state it wants and how it can uh, function in an efficient modern way. And, and, you know, after COVID, the global crash, there was a turn to the state, but the lessons weren't learnt. Just in a couple of minutes we've got left, what of Keir Starmer then? Because he is, uh, some people think he's a quiet man too. Uh, some people think he's boring. Uh, some people, and I'm one, think to be quiet and time, at times boring is quite an asset in our t- daily politics. I actually think that, rather like Clement Attlee, it's not a bad thing to be. So what, what's, what's your assessment? I, I think uh, we will know only if or when he wins because... At the moment, uh, it could go either way. And I'm not trying to escape the answer. It genuinely could. In the, If you look at some of his policy proposals, they are too cautious, too incremental. And given the scale of the task, which is, I think compares to Thatcher's in 79, they won't do. But then if you look at other policies, his green recovery plan, his plan on employment rights, so an industrial strategy, uh, some of the constitutional reforms, it could be a, a more radical government than you might expect. So I think we genuinely don't know. And to return to one of your themes, Brexit is an interesting test. What is being said is very, very cautious, but they all know privately, it's a disaster. So will they address that mountainous challenge? And I just don't, what do you think, Gavin? I don't know quite what he will be like as a prime minister. Well, I, I, I yeah, I don't know either. I, I, the only thing I would say is that Thatcher of 1990 was not Thatcher of 1979. Yeah. And if Starmer wins, the Starmer of 2024 would not be the Starmer of, say, 2029 or beyond. So, I mean, you make that quite clear in your book, actually. Yeah, we could be on the edge of another turning point of historic significance after the last 13 years of wild turbulence. We just don't know yet. (laughs) As they didn't in 78, you know, we're the equivalent now in 1978. They didn't know, as you suggest, uh, quite what would happen if Thatcher won. Everyone soon found out. Neither does she. 
And she didn't. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, well, I love the book, Steve. Yeah, the book you. is Turning Points. And uh, Steve, thank you very much for talking to us. And listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please support The Bunker on Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you can get perks like exclusive merch and ad-free episodes. And you can also catch Steve on Rock and Roll Politics every Tuesday. This is The Bunker. I'm Gavin Esler. Goodbye. The Bunker was presented by Gavin Esler and produced by Chris Jones. Assistant producer is Adam Wright, audio producer Robin Lieber, socials by Jess Harpin, art by Jim Parrott and music by Kenny Dickinson. Managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.